0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. And if you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we're going to try our best to finish up that second chapter of Ephesians. It's going to be several things going on in the next few weeks that may keep us from staying in the book of Ephesians, but uh, we'll do our best to stay on track for now, and then we'll move along with those things in the days ahead. So Ephesians chapter 2. If you found that this morning, if you would, I'd about stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And we're going to start in that 19th verse of the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, and it reads like this, Now, therefore, This morning, Father, we have read your word. We have sung your songs. We have fellowshiped together. We have spent our time in prayer together. And now I ask this of you, that you focus our attention solely upon you, that you take this physical body of mine and you set it aside and you fill me with your Holy Spirit to preach the message that you would have preached this morning, that you walk with the soft shuffle of sandals feet amongst those gathered here and you implant into their hearts those things out of the word this morning that are so needed. And that today, Father, we leave this place different, changed, changed to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, for your honor and glory alone. This we pray in His name, the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we were talking about being fitted together in the cornerstone, being fitted together in the cornerstone. You know, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all theology about the church and about what the church is and how the church came about. And, and then the, the last three, verse, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are application of that, and we're right dead center of this theology about the church and, and what it is. And it's tough sometimes walking through theology and trying to take in the theological statements and, and the, the different things without there being application. But the application is coming. The application is coming. This morning we're going to look at what it means to be fitted together in the cornerstone. And last week we looked at the first point of a four-point sermon. And that first point was that we are a new fellowship. We were a new fellowship of believers. We picked that up in verse 19 where it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're no longer a stranger and a foreigner to God you're no longer a stranger and a foreigner to each other you've made a new fellowship or God has made a new fellowship through the death burial and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ and he has fitted us together the word says and we we flipped over last week to Philippians and we'll pick up there flip over to Philippians with me the third chapter of Philippians and we'll talk about this this citizenship in heaven and we'll dive back into our verses to apply that that citizenship and and we talked about last week this resurrection reconciliation that Jesus had done this reconciliation of the body to to reconcile us to God through the forgiveness of our sins and to reconcile us to each other because we have one spirit one Lord one Christ it put us all together and over in Philippians chapter 4 of chapter 3 I'm sorry chapter 3 verse 17 it says this brethren join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You remember we talked about that last week. From among us as well as from outside there are those that walk as if they are right and they're not. They're enemies of the cross. We all were enemies of the cross before Jesus saved us with his own precious blood. And he's saying there's still these enemies. He picks up in 19 and says their end or whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly? and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. If I were to go around the room and ask each of you to mention someone's name that fits that category, we would be here all day because you know so many people that their God is their belly. Their God is their, the one that fulfills those physical needs that they have. Look at the world today. Look at how the laws are changing. Look at how our desires are changing as a culture. Look at how things are changing around us. It has everything to do with us. I, we. It's all about what we want, what we need. There are no absolutes anymore. Nobody wants to be an absolute anything because it may infringe on their so self-given right of some sort. In other words, they're, they're all about themselves. They care about no one else, and they care less about God. See the picture of the enemy of the cross? He moves on in verse 20. He says, for our citizenship... This is now talking about those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice how he links these two terms for Jesus, Savior and Lord. He didn't just come to punch your ticket to heaven. He came to punch your ticket and take over the lordship of your life. And you say, hold on, I want to be the Lord of my life, okay? Okay. Your destruction is coming because your God is your belly, it says right above that. For the ones who choose to lord over their own life, which is actually allowing Satan to run their life, it tells us their destruction is coming for their God is their belly. You see, we look forward to the day that the one who hung upon a cross for our sins is going to step out of the portals of glory and call us home. We look forward to the day that that Savior and Lord of our life here calls us home. He says in verse 21, this is what is going to happen. We will transform our lo- or who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. How many of you would like to have a new body? <laughs> I stood in front of the mirror this morning when I got out of the shower. Didn't mean to make you throw up in your mouth as you thought about that. But I just can't wait to the day that God takes this physical body that causes me so much suffering and pain and glorifies it. Glorifies it to be more like his son Jesus Christ. That one day the body will no more hurt. I'll need no more eye surgery. I won't have to worry about sleep. I won't have to worry about eating. I won't have to worry about sorrow, pain. I won't have to worry about crying. Because when Jesus calls me home, He's going to conform this body to His glorious body. How's that going to look? He says it's going to be according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. We serve a Jesus, we serve a Lord that is able to subdue all things to Himself. And one day he will subdue those things of this physical body and give us a glorious body. We'll rise from the dead if we have gone on before. We'll rise in our life if we happen to be alive when he comes back. And we'll have this body, this body that it says is going to be his glorious body. You see, not only do we have this, this this new fellowship, Not only do we have this new fellowship together, but we have this new future that's coming. We have this new future that we should look forward to. Flip back over to Ephesians with me when it says this. In verse 19, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. In other words, we have a new fellowship, but it says, But fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. Citizens of what? Citizens of the new kingdom. Citizens of a new place. It's just like he said over in Philippians. We may live here, but this is not our home. We're sojourners. We're just passing through. We're like nomads in the desert heading to our home. Sometimes we get so focused on the desert we're living in, we forget our address isn't here. When you mail me heavenly emails or you email me heavenly letters, It doesn't come here. It comes to my home. You see, we not only have a new fellowship together here, but we have this new future, this new citizenship. And I got to thinking, what does it mean? What does it mean that we are going to a place that we're going to be a new citizen? What does it mean to be a citizen? We hear all kinds of things in our our world today, and especially here in America, as there seems to be new rights developed every day for citizenship. Citizenship. Matter of fact, it seems that we just give citizenship to anyone now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're supposed to be here or not. It doesn't matter if you're a citizen two or three places. Come to America. We'll take anybody. We'll give you all the exact same rights, the exact same privileges. We'll just hand it all out. But what does it really mean to be a citizen? I wrote down a couple of notes. One thing that means to be a citizen is that we have a home. You know, there's a lot of folks that can't call anywhere home. Look at what's happening over in the other part of the world now over in the eastern part of the world with all of those refugees trying to escape persecution trying to escape death trying to escape from what they've called home forever and they're running they're running in droves they're having to stop the trains from hauling people they're having to close border crossings they're having to find places for these people to go and you know what they're finding out is they have no home what would happen if one day you were driven from this land and you were forced to go somewhere else. And you would have no home. You see, to be a citizen means that there is a place for us. The Bible tells us that Jesus has gone ahead. And what is he doing at this very moment? He is preparing for you a place to stay in the home, in the house, in the mansion of your father, God. At this moment, he is nailing in the last nail on the siding to your room. At this last minute, he's preparing that place that you will be forever. And it's already your home. find it kind of interesting over in 2 Corinthians. And we'll be here for just a little bit if you want to flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this in the very first verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... If something happens in this body, this tent, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Something neat to think about your home. You'll never have to paint it. You'll never have to pay for it. You'll never have to worry about it burning down. You'll never have to worry about termites eating it. That house is being made for you right now, for all of eternity, that's your place, that you're a citizen of, it says is eternal in the heavens. So to be a citizen, we have a home, and our home is in heaven. But we not only have a home, we have a provision. You know, when I think about being a citizen of somewhere, we think about the government providing certain things for us such as the law enforcement, such as the military that defends us, such as the highway system that we drive on. All those things are provided for us. Yes, we pay for them in essence, but we don't have to go out and construct those things. We don't have to serve a certain amount of time on the police force every month to protect our neighbors and, and then rotate off. All that stuff is provided for us. So there's a certain amount of provision that comes with being a citizen. I find it interesting in Second Corinthians chapter 9 that it mentions... This, this provision, because when we think about our provision from God, I think about this. Verse 8 of the chapter 9 of the second Corinthians, it says, And God is able. Stop right there with me a second. Have you ever thought about God's capabilities? Have you ever thought about what God is able to do? I've heard discussions, and people say, Well, if he's God, can he, can he take a rock and turn it into something? Or can he do this, or can he do that? Or is there anything that God can't do? Is there anything that God can't do? Lie. He can't lie. He can't sin. He can't do any of those things. Why? He'd no longer be God. Because God is holy. But everything else that we think about in the physical, God is beyond capable. Look at what he did for his only begotten son, Jesus, when he lay dead in the tomb. There's proof positive to me. If a man can raise another man from the dead, He's something special. And if you can raise someone from the dead, you've got power beyond all power. And he starts off here and says, God is able. And he's able to do what? To make all grace abound towards you. Well, if you're saved this morning, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you understand that word grace. Because you understand that the penalty for how you lived your life and chose to live it was death, was separation from God for all eternity in a place called hell. And it was not by anything that you did, but by the absolute grace of an absolute sovereign God that you found Jesus. See, God reached down from the portals of heaven when he should have delivered destruction to your life. And through grace, he delivered love. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. And when he talks about this, he says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. He goes on to say that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. In a nutshell, what is he saying? The same God that showed the grace in your life to save you meets all of your needs. And he doesn't just meet them at the last minute to the bare minimum. He says he has all sufficiency in all things and having a abundance for every good work and abundance he doesn't just open a checking account in your name in the bare minimum he fills it up see god is able and he is our provision but you know so, so what else we have as a citizen we have rights we have certain things as a citizen of a country there's certain things we can do and not do there's this thing called the constitution that we use most of and it's those things that give us our rights and give us what we can do and what we can't do. There's amendments made, there's different things done that set forth these particular rights. And when I think about rights in heaven, I think about it being more than just these things we can do and we can't do. When I think about rights, I think about righteousness. You see, God is our righteousness. In Second Corinthians chapter five or yeah, chapter five, in verse twenty one it says this. For he, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, so for God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And why would he do that? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, we have all rights in God. We are righteous before God. Why? Because God made Jesus our payment. God bought us from that sinful life through the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He took us from that grave of sin and placed us in life and righteousness in Jesus Christ. So God gives us our rights, our righteousness. But you know what? I think about as being a citizen. If we're moving from one country to another and we're becoming a citizen of a different place... A lot of times cultures are different, languages are different, customs are different, and sometimes it causes us to have to be a little bit different, doesn't it? And you see, to be a citizen somewhere, we have to adopt sometimes a new culture and a new practice. Right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, still in verse 17, it says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things, new things have come. It says, Behold, all things have become new. See, if you're a citizen of a place called heaven because Jesus Christ has saved you through the blood that flowed from his cross, the old things in your life should be passed away. Those things should be gone. They should no longer be there. You should stand before God as a new creation, a new creation. Because you've been washed white with the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And see, to be a citizen of heaven means that you have a home, that you have provision from God, that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it means that you should be a different person. You should be this different person. See, all who've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are citizens of this place called heaven. And here's the catch. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the denomination, it doesn't matter the sex, it doesn't matter the education, it doesn't matter the age, none of those things matter. All who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are part of this place called heaven. Sometimes we look across the aisle at others and think, wow, I'm going to have to spend an eternity with them. Many of you are looking at me just that way right now. The good news is I'll never preach a sermon in heaven. You'll never have to sit through another one of these all through heaven. Some of you are saying, Jesus, please come quickly. But there will be a day that you will be joined for eternity together in a place called heaven. But you know, even now, you are joined together as if you were in heaven while being here. Sometimes we don't act like that, do we? Sometimes we like to point out all the faults of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially if they're from a different denomination, especially if they're a different race, sometimes even if they're a different sex or if they're old or young. But the Word says we're one body. It would be like you looking at your hand and saying, hand, I don't like you any longer. I'm not going to use you for anything. Other hand, I like you. I think I'll use you for everything. Ah. I really don't care how you work. I don't want you to be a part of the body anymore. Wouldn't that be foolish? Wouldn't it be foolish to take an axe and cut off a hand because you don't like it? Nobody does that, do they? Then why do we do it to the body of Jesus Christ? Why? Because it's just as foolish within the body of Christ as it is to do it to your own physical body. And he's saying that we're put together as fellow citizens in one body in one person and that person is jesus christ look with me back over to ephesians chapter 2 it says this in verse 16 right up above where we were it says that he might reconcile them both both the near and the far to god in one body through the cross therefore therefore putting to death the enmity the hatred hatred between you and god because of sin hatred between you and fellow man because of sin He says he put all that together. We're one body through Christ, drawn together from far and near with one access to the Father, he says. Because of what Christ has done, we're fellow citizens of one kingdom, and that kingdom is heaven. But not only do we have that new fellowship as citizens, we have this new family. It goes on to say in verse 19, it says, But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Have you ever wanted a new family? If you ever look around your family and said, man, I wish I had a new one. As a kid, sometimes we do. As a kid, sometimes we look and say, man, if I could have that family. They've got all the neat toys and all the good things. And, and we look over at this family and say, "Well, oh, man, they've got a big house. They've got a swimming pool. I don't have a swimming pool. I'd love to be a part of that family. And kids do that all the time. We as adults don't like to admit it, but we do the exact same thing. We look at others and say, man, how come I couldn't have grown up with that bunch? that has the big house with all the horses and and all those things? Why, Why couldn't I be like that? Well, the good news is, when you come to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you gain an entire new family. You don't just have this new fellowship as friends. You don't just have this new citizenship, this new place. But you have this new family. I mean, look around you. If you're saved, that's all your brothers and sisters. Y'all look a little different, but y'all have one daddy. Y'all have one Abba, one father. See, it's, it's not enough to know we're part of just a kingdom, but Paul tells us we're part of a household. You see, it's one thing to be a part of a country. You have certain rights, certain fellowship. But when you take it down from the country or the state or even the county level and you bring it right into a house... It kind of changes a little bit, doesn't it? You see, being members of a household, it gives us some different privileges than kingdom membership. Being a household member gives us some different belongings, doesn't it? I wrote down a couple of things that it gives us a place of refuge. Aren't you glad that your family, your physical family on this earth can be a place of refuge for you? Sometimes don't you just need somewhere that you feel like somebody's got their arms wrapped around you because the world seems to be attacking so bad? Don't you sometimes just need a place you can sit and be quiet and feel safe? See, the neat thing about being a household member is you have an entire body to come around you when there's trouble in your life. You have an entire body to protect you, to draw you near. You're part of this house. Not only does it give you this protection, but it gives you a sense of identity. A sense of identity. What do most people want in this world? It's a sense of identity. How do I know that? Walk up to a stranger today, someone that's here that you don't know or don't know very well. Walk up and introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. What do you do for a living? Stand back because they're going to tell you. Because how do most men identify themselves? By well, what they do for a living. Most women, if you walk up to us and say, hey, you pretty. You have any kids? Step back because they're going to identify themselves telling you about their children, aren't they? Don't we try to place something in our life that gives us some sense of identity? The good news is, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have a new identity. You have this new identity. And what is that identity? It's what we call ourselves. Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? We use the term so loosely today, I think we forgot what it really means. It means to be Christ-like. See, to be bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, to be put into one body, to be brought into the kingdom and to be placed into a household, gives you a new identity. It gives you identity with the one who died on the cross for your sins. See, when God looks at you, he no longer sees you as who you were. He sees you as who you are. And you are in Christ. You are a little Christ. You are a Christian. You are a Christian. It identifies us as belonging to that household of God. It identifies us as who we are and who is ours. See, most importantly, that name of Christian in your life identifies who is yours. And who is yours if you're a Christian? Jesus. God. You're one together. Being a member of a household should bring us closer. Flip over to Hebrews for me. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and I'm going to speed along here so we get through. It says this in 2nd chapter of Hebrews, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's talking all about Jesus. He goes on to say, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Isn't it wonderful to think that Jesus looks at you and calls you brethren? The Almighty God, the one who spoke all things into existence through his Son, Jesus Christ, the one who crawled upon a cross and forgave the sins of all men, the one who was able to rise from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, calls you brethren. You're not just a meager, lost little person on a ball of dirt called earth. You're a brother to Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. If that doesn't make you want to jump out of your pew and shout, somebody put lead in your underwear. It just excites me to think that Jesus looks at me and says, Brother, what an awesome thought. Look at Romans 8 with me. Since she didn't get excited about that one, maybe this one will help. Romans chapter eight, verse twelve. Verse twelve it says this: Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, and We're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, we're debtors, but we're not held in this body. We don't have to live according to the flesh. He goes on in 13 to say, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's talking about eternal separation, eternal death in a place called hell. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's talking about, again, this kingdom of heaven, this eternal life. goes on in 14 to say, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. See, we don't fall before a God in fear for what he's going to chastise us with. We fall before a God out of love because he's Abba. He's Father. He's not some God that's sitting on a throne waiting for you to mess up so that he can smack you. He's some God that knows you're going to mess up and is desiring for you to come to him and ask for forgiveness so he can cover you in his love. He's a Father that says, yes, there's going to be times that I'm going to bring something in your life that's going to cause you pain. And that's because you've chosen to do something or there's something in your life that needs to be corrected and you need to be chastised or there needs to be something to change your direction. But when you change that direction, I'm not going to sit here and hold it against you. I'm going to wrap you in my arms of love and remind you that I'm your daddy. What an awesome thought to think that Jesus dying upon a cross gave us this new fellowship, gave us this new place we're going to be, this new citizenship Thank God it gave us this new household with a new daddy. A daddy that loves us. For we're citizens of a kingdom and we're members of this household and God is our father. Jesus is our brother. But it doesn't stop there. In Ephesians 2, he goes on in verse 20, he says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What does he mean, build on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets? When we think about the apostles and the prophets, we think about those men who wrote the Old Testament, who proclaimed what was going to happen in the future, who spoke in place of God, that he spoke through. We think about those apostles that wrote our, uh, many of the books of our Bible, those ones that, that Jesus walked by the sea sewer and chose to be his disciples and made them apostles. We think about those guys, and, and yes, that's part of it. But what he's really saying here is that it's the foundation of those guys, not those guys themselves. What is the foundation that those gentlemen laid, those apostles and prophets? It's called the Word. You see, because God chose to speak through them, to pen the Bible that you hold in your hand, through those apostles, those prophets, to bring his living Word to life before you in a book. And it says it's on that foundation that those men laid through the word that this whole thing was put in place. That this whole body has been brought about. And he goes one step further and he says, here is what they brought about. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. You see, of all that we've talked about, what holds it all together it's like the foundation of any good house. It's how it starts. If you build the foundation on something less than solid rock, the foundation will give and the house will fall. You start the foundation with the most important piece, and what Paul says here he's writing, he's saying the house that's being built for the glory of God starts with one stone, and that stone is Jesus Christ Himself. Matthew 16 tells us the story of that, how Jesus himself said in Matthew 16. And I am going to hurry along. It says in 16, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 18, he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. This is Jesus talking to Peter. And he says, And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell that they should tell no one that he was jesus the christ see what jesus says jesus says i'm going to build this church and i'm going to build this church on one thing and he says it to peter and some take it that peter is what it's built on there are some entire denominations that hold peter at a high standard because they say he is the cornerstone of the church i beg to differ we'll look at that in a minute but jesus reveals this plan for the church let's look at the plan first he says there's going to be this power within this church because of what it is and what it represents it's going to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven the gospel the word for to enter heaven how must you enter through jesus christ through jesus christ is the only way to enter heaven john 1 tells us that jesus is the word he was with god before earth was created he is with god now he is the word he is the entrance that word is spelled out here in his word the keys to the kingdom of heaven are held by us the church And to allow the entrance to heaven, we must share the gospel because it says it's through hearing the word that we have the faith to believe. You see the picture of that kingdom entrance? And he even goes on to say that there'll be this binding and loosing. We won't talk exactly about what that is today, but it does talk about the power that's given to the church through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's awesome to think that, that Jesus had this plan. And he goes on to say that that there's it starts on one thing and he calls it there in verse 18 a rock on this rock I will build my church what is that rock look back up the verse uh, 13 for me verse 13 in Matthew chapter 16 says when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples saying who do the men say that I am the son of or who the son of man am said some say John the Baptist some Elijah some Jeremiah or one of the prophets He looks straight at him and he says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter steps up and he says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You want to know what the church is built on? It's that statement. How do I know? Because in 17, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Sar- Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in the heaven. And then he goes on in 18 to say it's upon this rock, this statement that's so solid it cannot be shaken, this statement that's so solid that the hell cannot even penetrate. He goes on to say that the gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church because of what it's built on. This solid rock. He goes on there in Ephesians chapter 2, the end this way, he goes on to say that it's the cornerstone is him and who the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. And he shows this picture. This picture of the cornerstone being laid and each person that comes to be a member of the church being fitted together into this foundation, into this building, being placed one upon another to build something. And it says that something is a holy temple in the Lord. Have you ever wondered why the church is what it is? Have you ever wondered why the church came about? Have you ever wondered what the purpose of the church is? Jesus answers it here for us, I believe. He says this in verse 22. In whom you also are being built together, each of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, being built into, purposely placed in the building, Of the Holy Temple for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What should the church be? The church should be the dwelling place for the Spirit of God. It can only do that through reconciliation between our members. Reconciliation between us and those others in the world that proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. It can only be through the reconciliation of all of us and our God you see the church is useless if it's filled with contention the church is useless if it's filled with strife because where there is sin and strife and contention there can't be the presence of the Holy Spirit you see the Holy Spirit dwells where the Lord rules and I tell you this church it has been on my heart for some time and especially since I've been here as your pastor But the church of Jesus Christ in this world today needs to fall on its face and repent. It needs to ask forgiveness for the sins it has committed. The church needs to ask forgiveness for the things it hasn't done that God has instructed us to do. Have we really made a difference in the world we live in? Has this church, let's not worry about the others, let's worry about this church, has it made a difference in this community? Is this community different today because of anything this church has done in the last year, five years, ten years? Are there more people that can call heaven their home because of what we've done? Because if the answer to that question is no, then what we have done is given less people the opportunity to go to heaven and more people the opportunity to go to hell. Because, see, God has chosen to use you as the body to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we get so caught up in what we think is best, we forget there's a Savior, yes, but He's also the Lord. And I ask you this this morning, church. Is Jesus both your Savior and Lord? Is he directing what's happening in your life? Can you think even now of those times that God has asked you to do something and you've Walk past it, whether it be a person in need, whether it be a person that needs to know the gospel. A hard situation in life. Have you just walked past it because you're uncomfortable, because you don't know what to do? See, the Bible says, and it's said right there, that this church is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what happened in Acts when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church? 3,000 souls were saved. And you say, hang on a second. We don't have 3,000 people even here this morning. It didn't necessarily say there was 3,000 people there. It said when the Holy Spirit came alive to those folks because they dealt with the sin in their life and in their church, 3,000 people got saved that day. What difference would this community have If the Holy Spirit fell on this church and 3,000 people got saved. God can do it. He's done it. So I ask you this morning as we go to our invitation, where do you stand with God? First and foremost, is He even your Savior? Have you given your life over to Him? Have you asked Him to be the Lord of your life? Have you accepted the fact that you're a sinner bound for hell? And there's only one way that that won't happen.